Well, today we are going to be focusing here on Jesus calling his first four of the 12 apostles. And I want to focus our attention today on the fact that Jesus called his apostles both personally and objectively. And I think this is important because today you have many false teachers who are claiming to be authoritative spokesmen for Christ, and yet they're teaching error. But what we're going to learn today is that Christ's calling of his apostles was unique. And one of the ways it was unique is that it was personal and it was objective. It was not as if these apostles had some subjective unction within them that they decided to be apostles, but rather Christ personally intervened in their lives. Now, today we're also going to learn that all believers are called by Jesus Christ effectually unto a saving relationship with him. And so today we're going to see that there are both differences and similarities between the calling of the apostles and the calling of every single Christian. And I want to begin with the similarities. The calling of the apostles unto salvation is similar to that of all Christians. Okay, so when Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen to his apostles, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That ultimately extends not just to the apostles, but to all of us. We're going to learn that today, that we were chosen unto salvation. But second, this is what's similar, or excuse me, different. We see that the office to which the apostles were called is unique. Again, today there are many false apostles who claim to speak for Christ. Think about the Pope. The Pope claims to be the very vicar of Christ. He claims to be an apostle when he speaks ex cathedra from the seat. And yet what we're going to show today is that there are no modern-day apostles because none could claim to be personally and objectively called the way the original apostles were in the first century. So with that, let's begin here in verses 18 through 20 where we're going to look at Jesus calling his first apostles. And I want you to recall that Jesus had moved last time his ministry to Galilee. And the beginning of this ministry now coincides with the calling of his first four apostles. That's where we pick it up here. Matthew records this. He says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now I'm going to pull up my pointer. I want you to see right away that Jesus here is walking by the Sea of Galilee. Does everyone see that? Now remember, the Sea of Galilee is technically a lake. It's a big lake. It's 40,000 acres of water. So in Minnesota, that would be about the size of Lake Vermilion. Now there are six other lakes in Minnesota that are larger than the Sea of Galilee. Nonetheless, it was a big piece of water. In fact, so large was it that on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, you had nine fishing villages. One of them was Bethsaida. And it was from Bethsaida that Simon and Andrew had grown up. And at some point, they had moved to Capernaum, which ends up being the headquarters of Christ's Galilean ministry. Now, I want you to notice here that, again, Matthew records that Simon and Andrew are the first ones called. And I want you to realize that Simon was perhaps the most common name in Hebrew in the first century. And this may be another reason why Christ decides to give him a nickname, also reflecting his character. Remember Petros, the rock. Uh, Cephas is the same name in Aramaic. Now, this is one way then we distinguish Simon Peter from Simon the Zealot, who was also another one of the 12 apostles. Now, whereas Simon's name is Semitic, His brother Andrew's name is Hellenistic. It is a Greek name. And I think that really shows us that in the first century, there really was indeed a melting pot of Jews and Gentiles around the Galilee region. And remember, that all began in the 8th century BC invasion, where Assyria came down and smashed and then deported the northern tribes of Israel. And when they deported the northern tribes, they imported pagan Gentiles. And so you see that hodgepodge of Jews and Gentiles around the Galilean region, even in Christ's day. Now, I want you to notice here at the end of verse 18, Matthew makes it very clear, Matthew 4, 18. Notice he says that they were 
fishermen. Now, the fact that Matthew highlights that these men were fishermen is important for a couple of reasons. First, I think it explains why you see so much detailed of Christ's ministry around the region of Galilee. This is the stomping grounds of his disciples. But it also prepares us for verse 19, where Jesus, notice, is going to call them to be fishers of men. These men who were dedicated to fish for fish are now called to be fishers of men. Now, as Jesus calls them to be fishers of men, I think there probably is an allusion back to Jeremiah 16, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but if you're a note taker, jot down Jeremiah 16, 16. And the reason it's significant is in Jeremiah 16, God promised that in the future, one day he would restore Israel. And in verse 16 of Jeremiah 16, he said he would send out fishers of men and they would bring the lost of Israel back into their nation. Well, Jesus here is reappropriating that and he's using it for the building of his church. Now, what is fundamental about this call to be fishers of men is that is the root ministry of not just the apostles, but of every Christian. All of us, every one of you in here, everyone that's listening, every person who is a believer, the root of your ministry is to be fishers of men. Men and women is implied. Why? Because every single man and woman and child is precious, made in the image of God, that has an eternal soul. But every single man, woman, and child is also born sinners under the very wrath of God. And so what we all have in common is we are all called to be fishers of men. That's our primary mission. If someone asks you, what do you do in life? You might tell them your vocation, but then you should tell them, I'm also a fisher of men. My, my task in life is to see others come to faith in Christ for their forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to notice here, very importantly, Jesus says, follow me. Now, the follow me here is actually adverbal. It's an adverbal phrase but it functions like an imperative. And what's very interesting about him commanding his disciples to follow him is that in the first century, the relationship between the rabbi and the student was far different. In the first century, normally the student would go choose the rabbi. But here Jesus, the ultimate rabbi, the teacher, he's the one who chooses the student, his apostle. And again, in John 15, 16, it is true when he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Very, very significant. It wasn't that the apostles were looking for him, but rather it was the other way around. And we're going to see that ultimately in salvation, that's the way it is for us. We weren't looking for him, but he was the one who was looking for us. Now, notice here in verse 20, Matthew's very clear. He says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And that's extraordinary. Think about the responsibilities that these Galilean fishermen had. They had a responsibility to their families. They had a responsibility to their business, but they left it all. And the implication is they did so immediately. They didn't go to try to tie up loose ends with their family or their business. They followed him. Now, the question that brings up is what did Peter and his brother Andrew, see in Christ that compelled them to leave everything and follow Jesus immediately. Well, I want you to realize here in Matthew 4, we're given a summary of the calling of the apostles. Next week, we're going to see a summary again of Jesus' early ministry where he does miracles. So we're not given all of the details, but some of the synoptics do. And I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Now, Again, our task is to find out what Matthew is telling us, and that's going to be our primary task. But I want you to see some details where, in Luke 5, 1 through 8, Luke shed some light on what it is that particularly Peter saw in Christ that perhaps compelled him to follow him. So again, turn to Luke 5, 1 through 8. So think of Matthew 4 that we're reading here, verses 18 through 22. The section we're studying this morning is a summary, but here in Luke 5, we're given some details as, as to what that calling looked like. Notice Luke 5, 1. It says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, and of course, him is Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, stop there for just a moment. Lake Gennesaret is the same as the Sea of Galilee. Notice verse 2, it says, And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen 
had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Notice verse 5. It says, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Now, stop there in verse 5. I think you can detect there a little bit of an annoyance with Peter that he has with Jesus. He's saying, after all, hey, we're professional fishermen. We were out all night. We really worked hard, and we didn't catch anything. But we'll humor you, Lord, and we'll do what you say. That's kind of what you detect here. But notice the result of obeying Christ and what happens. Verse 6, it says, When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Verse 7, it says, So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Notice verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This is the beginning of the call of the apostle Peter. And what I think you see detected here in Luke 5, 8, is that Peter began to realize that this Jesus of Nazareth was not a mere mortal. And he saw that through the miraculous nature of this fish catch in Galilee. And I think that begins to explain why it is that they were willing to immediately leave all that they had and to follow Christ. Now, when we get to Matthew 16, we will finally see the confession by Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I think some things were dawning on Peter right at the beginning. Now, as we proceed in our next verses here, we see Jesus call two more brothers to be the first of his apostles. Verses 21 through 22, Matthew continues. He says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I want you to notice here, James and John, once again, are brothers, the first of the four that are called. John, of course, ends up being the gospel writer of our gospel, John. I want you to realize that with John, with James, and with Peter, three of the four that we see here, we have what I like to refer to as the inner three of the apostles. So think conceptually with me, if you will. During the three-year earthly ministry of Christ, he spent more time on the planet with the 12 apostles than he did with any other person. But of that 12, he spends the most time with the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And this accounts why they are the three that are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ when we get to Matthew chapter 17. Now, I also want you to note here that here Matthew depicts John and James in the boat with their father Zebedee. They're obviously fishermen, but notice Matthew does not record Jesus calling them to be fishers of men. He doesn't have to. That's implied. Why? Because they were fishers of fish. They have the same calling. They're going to be fishers of men as well. In fact, notice in blue, to me, the most significant clause in this entire section is where it says, and he called them. Now, there's a way that you and I can read that, and it just rolls off our back, and we just yawn. Oh, and he called them, and we yawn. But that's not how it should be read. This is how it should be read. And... He called them. Now, if I didn't have a deviated septum and a nasally voice, that would be very effective. But it's significant. He called them. The living God in the flesh called them. That's the calling that they received. It wasn't some subjective unction as if the apostles woke up one morning and said, you know, this whole Fishing business is getting a little tedious. I think we're going to follow Jesus of Nazareth. No, he called them. And I want you to think about this calling of his first disciples is certainly a call to ultimately trust and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. This is an example of what we're going to learn later of the effectual calling. The calling by which Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, calls his own sheep 
into his fold for salvation. It is certainly that. But it is also a calling of men who will uniquely be his authoritative spokesmen, who will give us the very scriptures. And in that sense, then, we have to realize that this is a personal and objective calling of these men that is unique. How many people can claim today, who are claiming to be apostles, that Jesus bodily came to them and called them to follow them? Zero. So when the Pope claims to be a modern-day apostle, when the Mormons claim to have their modern-day apostles, when you have men like Bill Johnson or Todd Bentley who are claiming to be modern-day apostles, you know what you can conclude? They're $3 bills. They weren't personally and objectively called by Jesus Christ. That's what we can conclude. This is unique. Now, I want you to notice again in verse 22, Matthew, for a second time in this short pericope, uses the term immediately. Some years ago, I taught the book of Mark, and we saw that Mark likes to use immediately to keep the narrative flowing. He's a gospel writer of action. His audience liked action. Keep the narrative going. Immediately they did this. Immediately he said this. Immediately they went there. But Matthew doesn't use it that way. Matthew's highlight here is that there was something magnificent about the way these men were willing to leave all that they had to follow Christ. And brothers and sisters, we're only looking at the first four of the apostles. When we get to Matthew chapter 10, we'll be looking at a wider list of the 12. And what all 12 of these men will have in common is that they are personally and objectively called by Jesus Christ to be his authoritative spokesman. And again, no person today can claim that. Therefore, we can conclude that, yes, these apostles were indeed unique. Okay, now, with that, let me come to some implications and applications. I have two of them for you here this morning. Number one, Christ's personal and objective calling of his apostles proves their unique status as his personal spokesman. And again, I'll labor the point that no one can claim that today. And I'm also going to show you a pattern from the Old Testament in which God objectively and personally, he called his spokesman, whether it was some judges or prophets or even Abraham. We'll look at that. So there was a pattern set in the Old Testament. Number two, we should know that all believers are saved because they too were called by Jesus Christ. Not called as apostles, but effectually called out of this world to having saving faith in Jesus Christ. We'll look at that. Okay, so let's begin with our first one. Today, I want to help everyone understand the unique nature of the calling of the apostles. That again, it was personal and it was objective. It was not some subjective unction that the apostles had that compelled them. No, they were sought out by Christ and personally called by Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. Now, what I'm going to do is lay out for you that this was a pattern that was laid out, I believe, in the Old Testament where God would often personally and objectively call his spokesman. And I want to begin with Abraham. Uh, Bob, I was talking to Bob DeWay this past week when we were talking about this passage, and he brought up a good point. He said, you know, Abram, at the time before he was called Abraham, remember in Genesis chapter 12, he is willing to leave his family, his hometown, his vocation, all that he has, all that he knows, to go to some land that he's never been to. Why? Because he had some personal unction? No, because God personally and objectively intervened in his life. Now, why is that important? Because a lot of people today think, well, I've had some unction, I've had some feeling, therefore I'm on par with the apostles, I'm on par with the prophets, I'm on par with Abraham. That's not true. Yes, we are all saved in the same way, but not of all of us write scripture the way the apostles and prophets did. That's the point that I'm driving at. So I want you to consider the calling of Abraham. And I want to turn our attention to Genesis 15. And what I'll lay out for you, it was personal and it was objective. And I want you to think that twice in Genesis 15.1 and Genesis 15.4, you can turn your Bibles there, you're going to see the claim that the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Now, certainly, someone could say, well, subjectively, they heard the word of God come to them. But as we're going to proceed in the narrative in Genesis 15, you're going to see that this wasn't subjective. This was a personal intervention and a theophany of God. 
So think about the word of the Lord came to Abram. And remember, the issue is that God had promised to Abraham, I'll just use Abraham, that through his son, he was going to have a tremendous nation. The problem in Genesis 15 is the only son that Abraham has isn't biologically connected to him. It was Eliezer of Damascus. His wife, Sarah, had not yet, remember, had a son. So he questions how this will occur. And so notice here in Genesis 15, 5, it says, And he, this is God, took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, I want you to stop here. Notice in the beginning in blue, the Lord took him outside. Now, it doesn't state how he did that, but I would claim to you that this is a personal intervention by God in the life of Abraham. Now, remember, as Abraham's brought outside by the Lord, he looks at the the stars and the promise is, so shall his descendants, literally his seed be. That's the great Abrahamic promise. And you know what the next verse says? Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, showing us that from the beginning with Abraham, salvation has always been by faith alone. But to remember, just two verses after that, Abraham asked the question, How do I know that I'm going to receive this promise? He still has some doubt. Notice that, and I think it's verse 8 of Genesis 15. I don't have it on the screen here. So what does God do? God says we're going to cut a covenant. And so that's what God does with Abraham. He cuts a covenant. Let me explain what that was. If you lived in the time of the patriarchs around 1800 B.C., if you had two warring tribes, they didn't just make a covenant. They cut the covenant. Karath is cut, Bereath is the covenant. They would cut a covenant. So what it would look like is something like this. Let's say you had two warring tribes. The leader of one tribe, they would cut an animal, both tribes would, and they put the blood and they would pool. And the one tribe, leader of the tribe, he would walk through the blood path and he would say, if I or my tribe goes against the terms of our covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to us in sevenfold or something like that. Well, then the next leader of the tribe, he would walk the blood path and say, if we go against the terms of the covenant, may what happened to that filthy animal happen to us in sevenfold. That's how they would cut a covenant. Now, do you remember that God has Abraham cut the animals in two and the blood is pulled up, but Abraham's put asleep? And who alone is it that walked the blood path? God did. God alone says, if my word doesn't come, if I go against the terms of this covenant, if it doesn't come about, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me. That's the implication. He alone walked the blood path, and that's where we pick it up in verse 17. Notice it says, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Notice here, the appearance of a smoking oven and a flaming torch. That is what we call a theophany, a manifestation of God. So no one has seen this side of glory, God as he is and can live. So a theophany is a way where God condescends himself in a mediated form so that he can be appreciated by humanity. And I want you to think about the significance of that. How many today could say, you know what? I saw a smoking oven and a flaming torch walking the blood path. No, this is unique. In fact, when you get to Genesis 18, the angel of Yahweh, which is Yahweh himself, speaks directly to Abraham, promising the the same promise. No, this is a personal and objective intervention by God in the calling of Abraham. People can't claim that today. It is unique. This is not normative. For people, remember Beth Moore said it's normative for everyone to have their own tent of meeting just like Moses. It's not true. It's not normative for you as Christians to have a theophany, a personal intervention by God. This is unique. And what Christians have done, unwittingly, all claiming that they have the same unique experiences, is they have attacked the uniqueness of the scriptures once and for all handed down to the saints by claiming that they have the same experience. No, God was authenticating who spoke for him, 
and who he had called. Now, I want to show you that not only were were the callings objective for the prophets. I'm going to show you that also prior to the prophets that they came around like the time of Elijah, you had the calling of the judges. And the judges of Israel were also often personally and objectively called. I want to show you that in Judges chapter 6. It's one of my favorite examples is the calling of Gideon. Notice here, remember, Gideon is called by the Lord to go after the Midianites who are oppressing the Israelites. Judges, notice chapter 6, verse 11. This is the calling of Gideon. It says, Then the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abezerite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice the claim is that it's the angel of Yahweh was sitting under this oak tree. Now the angel of Yahweh, as we often see in the Old Testament, is God himself. And I believe it's probably a pre-incarnate form of the second person of the Trinity. Right? You have the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh. Remember, the Lord all caps is Yahweh's name. He is sitting under an oak tree. How many today could say, yeah, you know, I saw the same thing. I had an apple tree and there was the angel of Yahweh sitting there. So this is, this is unique. Now, to show the, the close relationship between the angel of Yahweh and God himself, notice three verses later, Verse 14, it doesn't say the angel of Yahweh. It's just Yahweh. It's just Yahweh. This is the covenant God. He looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? I think Gideon needed something very objective and personal if he was going to take on this task. And so notice his calling was the the Lord himself, personally and objectively calling him. In fact, notice the term looked. The term in, in Hebrew there, panah, that he turned. He turned his face to him. Who did? Well, the same one that was sitting under the oak tree. That's the one who did it. Now, this angel of Yahweh is the same one who had confronted Moses and personally and objectively intervened years earlier at the burning bush in Exodus 3 2. Yes, Moses was personally and objectively called as the prophet and the mediator of the old covenant. You know, Elijah met personally in 2 Kings chapter 1 with the angel of Yahweh. And so my point is, these prophets, these judges, Abraham himself, they didn't just have some subjective unction to do what they were to do. No, they were personally and objectively called. That's the pattern that we see laid in the Old Testament. Now, the other thing I want you to see is not only were the prophets personally and objectively called, I want you to realize that they weren't the ones who volunteered for the service so much as that they were chosen. And I want you to see that because it ties us into the notion that in the New Testament, we have the same thing. Jesus says to his apostles, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. No, you didn't just volunteer to be the spokesman of God. He called you. You see this, for example, in Isaiah 49.1. Isaiah records this. It says, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, again, that's Yahweh, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. Now, one of the debates in this text that we have here in Isaiah 49.1 is who is this prophet that's being called? In verse 3, it says Israel. But what's interesting is most scholars believe this is a reference ultimately to the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah had to do what Israel failed to do. Isaiah 49 is about this prophet being a light not just to Israel, but to the nations. That's what Israel failed to do because of their sin. So this isn't just any prophet that's being referred to. This is the prophet par excellence, Jesus Christ. That's probably who it's referring to, that he was called from the womb. He has to do for Israel what they have failed to do. That's the idea. So he was called from the womb. He didn't just volunteer. Of course, being God, he did. But as a man, he was called to be the prophet of God. Think about Moses. Didn't he prophesy in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen that indeed there, he would raise up, God would, a prophet like Moses from amongst the people? And if you wouldn't listen to him, 
it'd be required of you? Yes. That's exactly what Moses prophesied. And so that's exactly what we see in Christ. Think about it. Jesus is not only the prophet par excellence, he is the apostle par excellence. Hebrews 3.1 says that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, being God, is the original sent one from the Father. And so the other apostles that he sends out are derived apostles from him. He is the prophet and the apostle par excellence. That's how we should see him. So what's interesting is not only do we see that he was called from the womb, that he was chosen by God for this, but that is what's normative for the other prophets. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah, it said of this, said of him this, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now stop there for just a moment. The knowledge here, knew, isn't just that God could pick Jeremiah out in a lineup. The same term, by the way, knew, yeah, that is used of Adam knowing his wife in Genesis chapter 4. Did, did that mean that when Adam knew his wife, that he, if he saw a bunch of women in a lineup, that one's my wife, I know her? No, she ended up conceiving a son from the knowledge that he had. It was an intimate knowledge. In the same way, God has an intimate knowledge of his elect that is unique. That is what's being stated here. Notice he consecrated him. What does that mean? It means to be set apart. Set apart for what? Prophet. Set apart to whom? God. Notice I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Does it sound like Jeremiah woke up one day and had just this inner unction and said, you know what, that's it, I'm being a prophet. This other business that I'm doing isn't working out. No, God called him. It was personal. It was objective. God chose them, not the other way around. Now, let me go to the New Testament. What I want to lay out for you is a robust understanding as to why the apostles are unique, why people today can't claim to be apostles. And I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. As you turn there, let me explain why you're turning there. What I want you to see here is a claim by the apostle Peter. I'm going to lay out for you that I think the apostle Peter is claiming that in order to be an apostle, you had to be personally and objectively with Christ during his earthly ministry. That is for three years. And I'll show you this from Acts 1.21 through 22. So please turn your Bibles there. Now, just before we read Acts 1.21, remember, just prior to that, Peter was laying out, number one, that it was prophesied that Judas would go to perdition, but number two, there'd be a replacement. He lays that out from Scripture. But now in verse 21... Notice he says, therefore, it is necessary. Stop there. The term necessary, if we were to translate that from day in the Greek into English, the term necessary would be transliterated D-E-I. Now, what does D-E-I mean, day? Well, it means, more than likely, the divine necessity. That's how it's used most often. In other words, Peter isn't saying, well, you know, if I had my druthers, And if people would just work the way I want them to, we should do this. No, he's claiming this is of divine necessity. This is what God compels to happen. He says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, that's his earthly ministry, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now here, Peter's making the claim that it's necessary for there to be a replacement, but I also think he's making the claim that it was God's necessity that whoever that replacement was, was with them from the beginning of Christ's ministry to the end of it, that they were personally involved with Christ. Think about in 1 John, doesn't John make the point that they're, Apostleship depended upon their seeing Christ, their feeling Christ, their eating with Christ, and their speaking with Christ. It was personal. It was objective. So how long did that earthly ministry last? It lasted three years. So the ones that they chose had to be with Christ for that three-year period. And the question is, what about the Apostle Paul? 
what I want to do is tie this in a big bow, and I want to show you that the Apostle Paul is brought to that same standard just as one who was untimely born. Remember, the Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that he saw the resurrected Christ, but as one who was untimely born. In fact, he says, last of all, he appeared to me. Bob did a wonderful job showing that that phrase, last of all, means the last in a series, meaning there aren't any more appearances. He came to the Apostle Paul last of all. Why is that important? Because according to 1 Corinthians 9.1, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection in order to be an apostle. But I'm going to show you that the Apostle Paul also was personally instructed by Christ for three years just later on. Let me build that case for you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is Paul himself is going to make the claim that when he received the gospel, it was not from man, but that it came from Christ himself. Now, again, I don't think that that's just on the road to Damascus. He must have been instructed later, and I think it's in Arabia, by Christ. Let me make the case. Notice Galatians 1.11 through 12. Hope you've turned there. Please turn your Bibles. Galatians 1.11 through 12. Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Stop there. The source of it's not man. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop. How did Paul receive the gospel? Was he being instructed by some men in a discipleship group? His claim is that he received it from revelation from Christ. So when Bob and I do the words of institution at the Lord's Supper, we read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Remember, it says, I deliver to you that which I received from the Lord. He received what from the Lord? The instruction. Now, what's interesting is we're going to find out that how long was he instructed by the Lord? Well, turn your Bibles to Galatians 1, 15 through 17, just a few verses later. Galatians 1, 15 through 17. Turn your Bibles there. Notice Paul continues. He says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, stop there. Where did we hear that? Where did we hear this idea that he was set apart from the womb? Jeremiah the prophet said it. It was said of Christ in Isaiah 49.1. Wait a minute. Paul is set apart from the womb just like the prophets of old? Wow. If we're the careful reader, that should stay in our mind. This wasn't some subjective unction that he had. No, it's the same calling that the prophets of old had. Notice he says, and he called me through his grace, and he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now notice the claim. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor, verse 17, did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Stop there. What I think is happening there is that's where he's receiving revelation from Christ. Personally instructed by Christ. That's the point. He's not receiving this from man. So where is he getting all of this? From the Lord. Notice verse 18. How long was he there? says, then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. That's Peter. And stayed with him 15 days. How long was the earthly ministry of Christ, it was three years. How long was the apostle Paul instructed by Christ for three years? The original apostle saw Christ's resurrection when it happened. In fact, there was over 500 people. Paul saw it as one who was untimely born on the road to Damascus. And he was the last of all to have seen him. Paul, the apostle, was brought up to the same standard. Jesus Christ personally and objectively taught him. That's what his claim is. He didn't just have a subjective unction, but rather he received it from revelation from Christ. That's his claim. And so do you see then when Paul says in Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, we can read by that called as an apostle and just make it a yawner. But again, it should be called as an apostle. 
And if I had a good voice, that would be very effective. He was called. Just like Jeremiah, personally and objectively. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Brothers and sisters, the calling of the apostles was personal and it was objective. Let's think about today that we have people who are claiming to be modern-day apostles like Todd Bentley and Bill Johnson. Can they say that they saw the resurrected Christ? Did Jesus Christ personally instruct them for three years? Did they eat with him? Did they talk with him? Did he personally intervene in their lives? No. No. They were not personally and objectively called as an apostle the way the original were. Brothers and sisters, what this means then is that those who are claiming to be modern-day apostles, they are wrong. That means that we shouldn't listen to the Pope. That's the claim. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the seat, he's standing in the authority of Peter the Apostle, the very vicar of Christ. He should not be listened to. The Mormons have their modern-day apostles. They should not be listened to. No, no one can claim what these apostles could claim. And brothers and sisters, that's why you and I, because we have the apostles off the scene of history in the first century, we know that's why Jude 3 makes sense. When we are to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. If you had modern-day apostles, it's not once and for all. It's going to keep morphing and changing. How can it be once and for all if you have modern-day apostles? The apostles gave us the scriptures in the New Covenant. So if you have modern-day apostles, then Jude 3 makes no sense. But if you realize that they are unique, as I'm laying out today, Jude 3 makes sense. It's been given to us the scriptures once and for all. That's what we learned today. So do you see then how significant it is when Jesus said to the men that were his first apostles, follow me. It was personal. It was objective. Okay, now I've just talked about what was unique about the calling of the apostles. Now I want to talk about the similarity between the calling of the apostles and what is true of every Christian. Every person who becomes a believer only becomes a believer as a result of the effectual call. So what I want to do is talk some theology with you today, and we're going to distinguish between two different types of calling. In theology, we talk about a first type of calling is called the general call or often called the universal call. This is a call that goes out to all people. You see it in Joel 2.32, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It really is a genuine invitation to all people. So much so that Jesus says in John 6.37 that all those who come unto him, he will by no wise cast out. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he's not going to look and say, well, you know what, you're not in the list. He will receive you if you come to him. In fact, not only is this a universal invitation for all people, it's a universal command. Doesn't Jesus say in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel? That's in the imperative. It is a command. It's not a helpful suggestion. Every human being that ever exists is commanded to believe upon Jesus Christ. Everyone. Everyone is invited. Everyone is commanded. Here's the problem with the universal call. Do you know how many people respond to it left to their own devices? Zero. That's the depravity of humanity. There are no people that will respond to the universal call left to their own devices. This is why Paul, talking about human depravity, says in Romans 3.11 that there's none who seek after God. No, not one. This is why Jesus says in John 6.44, no one has the ability to come to me. I like the term ability, dunamis. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's impossible. So if no one is going to respond to the universal call, how can anyone be saved? Well, that's where we bring in the effectual call, the calling whereby God supernaturally and sovereignly enables someone to believe. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's the effectual calling. It is synonymous with regeneration. It's a calling unto regeneration whereby one believes. 
Okay, now, let me give you an example of this from the Scriptures, a very succinct one. We're going to be coming to this in Matthew chapter 22. Remember, Jesus gives that parable of the wedding feast? And what's the major points of the parable? Well, you have a father who represents the Heavenly Father, and he's going to have himself a wedding feast for the son. Okay, sound, sound familiar? We're going to have that one day, right? As believers, we're the bride. Jesus, the son, he's the bridegroom. So that's the imagery. So the invitation goes out to all people, well, those who are on the list. So the invitation goes out in Jesus' parable, but it's rejected. And he gets angered. And in the parable, he sends out other invitations to others. And what you finally have at the end is there's a man that's there in the wedding banquet, but even he is rejected. Why? Because he doesn't have his wedding clothes on. And so Jesus' summary is right here in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. And notice I color-coded this appropriately. Notice in red, there you have the universal call. They're all called. The invitation went out, but they wouldn't respond in their sinfulness because few are chosen. That's the effectual call. When Jesus said to his apostles, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, Yes, it extends for them in their office, but it's also true of every Christian unto salvation. We didn't choose him, he chose us. That's the calling of the great high shepherd. Why is it important? Because when you've been called by the shepherd, it shows the security that you have. You will never be lost. But it also shows us where all the glory goes. It's not to me because I was smarter than my neighbor. The glory goes to the one, the true shepherd who called me. Now, I want to show you how the scriptures depict Jesus as the great high shepherd who calls his sheep uniquely to belong to him. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Please turn to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, because I want to show you how Jesus is depicted as the good shepherd who calls his sheep uniquely unto salvation to belong to him. Now, as you're turning again to John 10, 1 through 2, recall in the history of Israel, there were a lot of bad shepherds, weren't there? You had false prophets, false teachers, bad kings, bad leaders, and these were bad shepherds who led the sheep to slaughter. And the sheep that went to slaughter, of course, were sheep that didn't belong to God. So the promise in the Old Testament was that God would bring in the good shepherd. And sure enough, Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. Notice John 10, 1 through 2. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, let me explain what he's building off of. There was a great scholar named uh, Gerald Bolchert who spent time with Bedouin shepherds in Israel. And he learned some fascinating things. One of the things that he learned is the way they would construct their folds for the sheep is they'd often be in a square. There would be blocks, like a block wall in a square. And the only opening, there would only be one opening, and the doorkeeper would stay there while the shepherd was out. And so the doorkeeper was the hired hand. And he would stay there, and obviously anyone who would try to climb up a wall was going to be a thief. There's only one way in that's valid. It's the door. And so the doorkeeper, of course, knew who the shepherd was. Now, think about the imagery. Then the sheep are secure. The shepherd is away. He's taking care of them. Now, what was so fascinating about Bolchert's testimony was that he said, the shepherd's voices were so unique that if you had three shepherds, let's say you had three shepherds are having lunch together, uh, they're friends, or maybe they're playing cards. This is modern day. And you've got three different sheep herds. Is that a herd? Three different squadrons, (laughs) platoons, whatever you want to call them, of sheep. And what's interesting, they'd all start mingling, but then let's say they get done, these three shepherds, with their food and their cards or whatever they're doing, tiddlywinks. They finish up, and the one man would use his unique voice, and all of his sheep would come to him. Then the next shepherd would use his unique voice and all his sheep would come to him. And then the next one would do it. And all of a sudden, all the sheep are all organized. They belong to their shepherd. Why? Because they know the shepherd's voice. It was unique. Not only that, but the shepherd was so gifted with his voice and he named all of his sheep. He knew them. He could call each one by name. 
If he needed Susie to come, well, Susie would come. And if he needed Billy to come, Billy would come. He could call them all by name. That's how, they, that's how effective these shepherds were. So listen to what Jesus builds off of. John 10, 3. To him, this is the good shepherd, the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows his sheep and he calls them by name. He calls them to be his own. That's the effectual calling. And this is what explains then, when you get to John 10, 26, Jesus explains, why do some not believe? Why don't they believe? He says to the unbelieving Jew, this is Jesus, not Aragama. Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. No, no one will ever see salvation unless they are called by the shepherd. Jesus today intervened in the lives of the apostles and he called them. And it's weighty. Called to be apostles, oh yes. But called unto salvation in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the effectual calling. What does it mean? It means if you belong to Christ, you're secure. No one's going to pillage you in the fold. But it also means all glory goes to him. This is why we see in Romans 8.30, think about the effectual calling here. Paul's talking about the effectual calling. He says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse is often called the golden chain. All the verbs are aorist, active indicatives, typically having to do with something in the past tense. So if, those, if you've been predestined, you've been called. If you've been called, you've been justified. And most of us can kind of go along with that. But you've also been glorified. And you say to yourself, well, wait, that hasn't happened yet. In fact, there hasn't been the resurrection yet. But in God's eyes, it's already done. If you've been called, you're going to be glorified. That's how secure you are. Why? Because you've been called by the effectual calling of the great high shepherd. Brothers and sisters, you and I weren't saved because we were smarter than anyone or because we chose Christ. Jesus is the one who said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. The great high shepherd who calls all of his own by name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you and give you praise, honor, and glory for the salvation that you bring. We thank you for the calling, the unique personal calling of your apostles to be your spokesmen so that we're not confused as to who speaks for you. We do pray, Lord, for those that may be listening who are confused about false apostles and prophets, Lord, that you would bring them out of that, that they would learn, Lord, that your apostles have spoken and your word is deposited once and for all. We thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that you've called us each by name, those who trust in you for the forgiveness of sins. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us and keep us. I pray in the weeks and months that may be difficult ahead that you'd give us perseverance. Give us boldness to proclaim your word and the gospel to others and open up hearts and regenerate them before us so that others may, be, that others may have salvation as well and the forgiveness of sins that we too would be fishers of men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.